My, it is just an incredible blessing and joy and delight for Sharon and myself to be here to worship with our Honoka'a Ohana. And let me just very quickly add that it is, uh, it is such a blessing to have received these beautiful lays. I know that these lays are given with much aloha, and I can assure you that they are received with much aloha as well. So thank you so, so very much. Was your heart blessed by the special music, Clayton? Thank you so much. Beautifully, beautifully done. You know, when I was going through, the, uh, through college in the seminary, and I would take speech classes, it was, it was pounded into our young minds that we were never to begin a presentation or a speech with an apology. So let me just apologize for the apology that is coming. <laughs> Because it was actually it was several weeks ago that uh, Pastor Kayal and I were talking about this Sabbath coming here to worship on this Sabbath, and uh, in our discussions, it was it was mentioned. Well, it would be kind of nice if Sharon could bring her flute and play special music. My wife Sharon has her masters in flute performance, and so as we travel around to the 30 churches here in the Hawaii Conference every Sabbath, we're in a different church. Sharon oftentimes brings her flute. Well. Keala knew, Pastor Keala knew that she was going to bring it. I knew that she was supposed to bring it, but I never passed that information on to Sharon. <laughs> and so really, quite honestly, the only logical excuse that I can come up with this Sabbath is that a couple of weeks ago, I turned 52. <laughs> and so I, don't, I guess a senior moment's going to have to work on this one. But uh, I think one way to rectify it is if Pastor Keala invites us to come back sometime soon, we will return, and uh, Sharon, I will remember to pass on that information to her next time. But it is, it is uh, you know, every Sabbath is just a joy and delight, and uh, to be here is, is, is something very, very special. You know, I, I remember the very first time I came to preach here, uh, Sharon was not able to come, and uh, I've had several more visits here. It's usually been during the week when I've been spending some time with Pastor Keala. But I do recall, you'll remember this. It was just, I think it was just a few months ago. Remember when the tent was out here in front and uh, uh, Daniel Stratus was doing the evangelism? And I flew over, uh, especially to spend one evening uh, to participate and to be blessed by the, uh, the evangelism. And... It's something that I try to do as a president. We have a number of our lay people who are actively involved in preaching the word, amen? I think that is so exciting. And so as president, one way of showing my support for the hard work that is being put into this is I try to make it around to at least one meeting. I've missed on a few occasions, but by and large, I've been able to do that. And uh, I remember that night, Daniel was preaching on the second coming. And at the very close of his presentation, as he preached the word, he gave a little appeal at the end, and my heart was stirred. I responded to that call, and I too made my way down to the front to just recommit my life, my heart to God, that I want to be ready when Jesus comes. Amen? I know you want to be ready too, and uh, so we're just, we're grateful to be here. You know, there's, a, there's just, I, I do want to say publicly how much I have grown to deeply appreciate uh, the leadership the, the pastoring, the ministry of, uh, of Pastor Keala and, uh, and his wife, Yvette. I know that, that he has just a real heart for God, doesn't he? Your pastor has a real heart for mission and for evangelism and reaching the community. And I really appreciate the emphasis 
as far as Bible workers, as a pastor, I invited, uh, we made arrangements uh, a couple of years to bring in a Bible worker, and it just made a huge, huge difference in our church there in Ukiah, Northern California. And uh, so I, I want to just, because I know I'm not here on a very regular basis, but it gives me an opportunity to just express to you how much I deeply appreciate the faithfulness of each one of you in this congregation, in this parish, in this community, in making a difference for God, to expand the kingdom of God in anticipation of the soon second coming of Jesus Christ. And you're so faithful. You're faithful in returning to God your tithes and offerings. You're faithful in returning to God the gifts, the talents, and abilities that he's given to you in ministry. I think all of us recognize and realize that this work is not going to be accomplished by pastors. You agree with that, right? It is only as we all come together utilizing and putting in ministry the gifts that God has given to us because they're not our gifts. God has infused these into us and we return to the, them to him in ministry to reflect the body of Christ in this community. So I want to thank you. I realize that we live in very challenging times, but I do believe that this is a time for us to stand up for God, to make a commitment to him and be faithful to God in every area because we must be willing to put God first in all that we do, and God in turn blesses us. Is this not true? He blesses us. So I do have a brief word I want to share with you from his word. Are, are you okay with that? And I know that it's about a quarter to 12, so I'm going to talk rather quickly. But before we begin, I'd like to invite you to just pause with me as we have another word of prayer together. Father, we are so grateful. Our hearts, as we are huddled here together in this beautiful, beautiful sanctuary, we know that your spirit is here because we have already been immensely touched by this, the lesson study that we enjoyed a little bit earlier through the music, through the word, through the song, through the prayer. And now in the, uh, in the final moments that we're able to spend together, we want to open up your word, but we want to be touched by your word. We want to be touched. We want to be moved. We want to be changed. We want our hearts to be convicted. We want to walk from this place committed to live a life that is faithful and true to you no matter what. And so my prayer, O Holy Spirit, is, is that you will, you will move among our lives right now as we open up these sacred pages. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to suggest that we go straight to the word here this morning. Are you okay with that? So if you'd open up your Bible and go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to just take a few brief moments again in those very first opening lines of Revelation. It's interesting. It begins with five words in the English. In the Greek, you only need three. Apocalypsis, Jesu Christu, which simply means the revelation of of Jesus Christ. Now, when you look up the word revelation in the original languages, it just simply means the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ. But I want you to know that, notice this. This is, a, this is a powerful beginning of this apocalyptic book. And uh, the, once again, we're in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must by the way, I'm, I'm reading from the New King James. Your translation might change. The wording might be a little bit different, but if you have either King James or, or New King James, you can just simply, when I ask for the word, feel free to just simply say it out loud, okay? Things which must, what? Shortly take place. 
And so he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness, by the way, this is verse 2, bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Verse 3 begins with the word blessed. I have a question for you. Here together this Sabbath as we worship in this sanctuary, would you like to receive a blessing? I think that's why we're here. Listen, do you realize right here in verse 3 is a promise of a blessing? And this is how we receive it. It says this, blessed is he... Blessed is the one who reads, all right? There's three things I want you to keep in mind. Who reads the things that are in this prophecy, who keeps the things that are written here. But far often, this is where we stop. We stop with the reading of the word. We stop when we, when we hear the word. But this is, the, this is the, the portion of this scripture I want us to take note of. It says that the blessing also comes for those who what? Keep the things that are written in the word. I.e., it is not just simply enough for us to gather Listen to the word that is, pre that is preached. Read the word, but then simply continue on with life as usual. You see, the blessing comes when we take that, that which we have read, that which we have heard, and then apply it in our lives and live our lives according to the word. Amen? Then notice the very last part here. It says, for the time is what? Near. The time is near. I want you to just pause for just a moment or two and consider as we have been living on this planet called Earth for the last several months, how rapidly Earth's headlines are changing every single day. I tell you what, my friends, something is going on on this planet. Would you agree with it? Something is going on. What I find remarkable is that people who don't even necessarily believe in the Bible, much less adhere to the teachings of these scriptures, are coming along and saying, man, what in the world is going on? See, you can feel it in the air. You can sense it in the times. I would suggest to you that there are clear indicators out there that Jesus is coming soon. Now, we are Seventh-day Adventists. We are a people who take the word of God seriously. And Seventh-day Adventists, it is a part of our DNA. It is actually in our name. We are Seventh-day what? Adventists. We believe in the soon second coming of Jesus Christ. Amen? And we believe that, and because we believe it, we find ourselves studying last day events. I would suggest to you that as we study the Bible and as we look at the signs that Jesus has given to us, these signs, these indicators are blinking that Jesus is coming very soon. I'll share one with you. Of course, Matthew chapter 24 is, is often referred to as the great signs chapter. Is this not true? The great signs chapter. But there is, one of the signs is also found in Revelation chapter 13. You don't need to look at it because I know that you're very familiar with it. It's Revelation 13, I think around verses 16 and 17. I always had a difficult time somehow wrapping my mind around understanding how in the world is this ever going to happen. Because in Revelation chapter 13, it talks about there will come a time just before Jesus comes that unless every man, woman, and child on this planet receives a mark, they will not be able to what? Buy or sell. You're, you're familiar with this, with this prophecy, right? That if you don't receive a mark, you're not going to be able to buy or sell. And I always used to ask myself, how in the world is that ever feasible? How can that happen? And then September 2008 has occurred, and October 2008, when the global economy begin to simply melt before our very eyes. 
And we come now into the early part of 2009. And the financial system is simply bottoming out. So what was the only way that these banks were going to be remain open? Who is basically bailing out the banks? It's the government. You see, there has always been this firewall between government and the financial institutions of this planet. And I always used to ask myself, listen, how in the world could it ever get to the point where, where as human beings, we would not be able to buy or sell unless there was some authority choosing who were the ones that were going to be able to buy and sell, i.e., the government would have to be in control at that time. And at least in this little humble pastor's heart, one who does take time to study the prophecies, trying to understand again the times that we are living in, I'm slowly beginning to see a picture unfold based upon the crisis that this planet is. And by the way, this is not just a financial economic meltdown in America. This is, would you agree with this? This is a global crisis that we're talking about. And now you start hearing words in the public se sector as far as words along the lines of an economic Armageddon, using biblical terminology. And so now we have the government infusing trillions of dollars into a banking system. There's even talk about a government bank to somehow control what is going on. And can you begin to see where we are drifting to a point in time where the government is in control of the financial system and institutions, i.e., then the government is in control of who can buy and sell. And so as I was kind of wrestling through some of these thoughts, I was, just to share a very brief testimony, I was, it was time for me to make a quick trip over to the mainland. And so as I was dashing out of the house, I, uh, I thought, well, you know, I want to I bring something to read as I'm, as I'm sitting those hours on the airplane. And so as I was... As I was running out of the house, I reached over and grabbed my copy of a book that you are very, very familiar with. It is the book that is entitled The Great Controversy. Are you familiar with this book? The Great Controversy. And I took that book and I actually began on chapter 18. You know, it's kind of a long book and I knew I wouldn't be able to read the entire thing through in just a few hours. So I started on chapter 18. It's a chapter that is entitled An American Reformer. It's on the life of William Miller and his discovery of Daniel 8.14 and the whole time prophecy uh, written out there. And having reread that again, I feel a conviction in my heart that as I stand before you here again on this Sabbath, I need to remind you that Jesus is coming soon. Do you really believe that with all your heart? Jesus is coming coming soon. Now, I, I'm really, I, I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm not trying to play on our emotions, but somebody needs to verbally say out loud that we are awfully close to the coming of Christ. Are you okay with that? We are awfully close. And how did Jesus put it? He said, when you see these things happening, lift up your head for your what? You see, this is, this is a buoyant call on our part. It, it, is, it is supposed to be a joyous occasion. As you see these signs transpiring around us, Jesus, the invitation by Christ is to lift up our heads because in reality, it is a sign that Jesus is coming very, very soon. Now listen, I, I realize that there are some that say, listen, in, anything that you do in the apocalypse or revelation, it's just, it's, it's, you're just being alarmist, you're trying, to, you're trying to scare people and get them all worked up over nothing. But let, let me ask you this question. 
what possibly is there to be lost on our part if we choose to live our lives with a sense of urgency that Jesus is coming soon? What is to be lost by living life like that? Nothing, right? In fact, the reality is, is that we have everything to gain. Is this not true? There is nothing to be lost with the, with the thought of living. In, in fact, if I were to know for sure, for certain, that Jesus was to come in the year 2009, if you were to know this for a reality, that you, how would that change your life? How would it change the priorities of your life? How would you choose to live? What would be the priorities that you would have for your family? and the raising of your children. If we knew that Jesus was coming this year, how would it change the priorities as far as how I spent what was in my financial portfolio, how I spent my money, where I invested the money? How would it change our everyday life if we knew for certain that Jesus was coming in the year 2009? How would you spend it? I, I, I always was a, rather intrigued because I, I was a pastor for... 22 years before accepting this invitation to come to Hawaii three years ago as, as the conference president. But in my pastoral ministry, I, I was always rather intrigued how oftentimes people would come up to me and say, even individuals, my own members in the church, there would be a few that would come up whenever I would start talking about, you know, the second coming and end times events, they'd say, well, you listen, listen, when, when the Sunday law is passed, that's when I'm really going to get serious. That is going to be the clear indicator for me that we are really finally in the last days and I'm going to really get serious in my relationship and my walk and my witness for Christ when that Sunday law is passed. Just so, there's always just something about that Sunday law. That's just going to be the clear indicator, the, the clear signs. Listen, my friend, it could be that for you, if you wait until then, it's too late. It is too late. Now is the day of salvation. Is this not true? It is that intentional choice that we make on a daily basis, this commitment and this recommitment to Christ that we make every single day. And yet I'm always, I'm always amazed how those are coming. You know, when the Sunday law is passed, that's when I'm going to get serious. What have we to lose by choosing to live life in this realm of the second coming of Christ? Are, are you okay with me bringing the great controversy with me to church? Are you all right if I, if I read just a few things out of, the great, uh, out of the great controversy? You may want to jot down some of the pages I'm going to uh, read from. This is page actually 601, page 601. And so again, this was something that, that refreshed my heart, convicted my life as I read through the last half of the great controversy again here uh, over the last few weeks. But, but this, is a, this is a little paragraph tucked in the very heart of page 601. So if you're jotting down notes here this morning, I would suggest you can just abbreviate GC, Great Controversy, page 601. I want you to listen to this appeal that comes from the pen of, uh, of God's messenger. Notice what she says here. I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just say this out loud because you do not have your copies. But she writes and says, we are living in the most solemn period of this world's history. Now, can any of us argue against that? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think the reality is, is that this is a description of our world today. She goes on and says, The destiny is er of, of Earth's teeming multitudes is about to de be decided. Our own future well-being and also the salvation of other souls depend upon the course which we now pursue. Now, notice this next line. Because 
in this next line, I find for us as Seventh-day Adventist Christians a very practical how-to piece of counsel for how we should be living our lives right now in the heartbeat of 2009. So listen carefully. This is what she says. So we need, what is it that we need to do? This is what she says. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord with fasting and prayer and to meditate much upon his word. Now listen, my friends, I know that we've prayed before, I know that we have fasted before, but if there was ever a time in earth's history that we find ourselves studying the word of God, I would suggest the time is now. But she goes on and says, we should now seek a deep and living experience in the things of God. We have not a moment, a moment to lose, moment to lose. Now, I suppose that this would be a, uh, an appropriate opportunity for me to share just a little brief testimony here with you, uh, with you the Sabbath. I know that many of us have not had a chance to become acquainted. I have, I have not had the opportunity of, of, of worshiping here in Honoka on a, on a regular basis. But my testimony is, is that I was, raised a, uh, I was raised in a Seventh-day Adventist home. I'm a fifth-generation Seventh-day Adventist. In fact, I'm a, I'm a fifth-generation Seventh-day Adventist preacher. In fact, sometimes I'll tell people is, is that if you were to prick my finger and send my, send my sample of blood into a lab, when the results would come back, it would just simply say SDA. <laughs> I, it, just, it just flows through my veins. I just I love the church. I love the Christ of the church. There's just something about uh, my father was a preacher. My grandfather was a preacher. Great-grandfather was a preacher. My my grandfather went as missionaries to Korea way back in the, uh, in the 1920s. They went by ship. My dad, became, uh, my dad was born in Korea. Uh, then he got his education and was called by God into the ministry. And uh, after pastoring a number of years, dad accepted a, an invitation to go to Korea as a missionary. At that time, there was four of us kids. I have three sisters and myself. And I remember to this day, this was back in 1963, back in the days when missionaries still went to the mission field by ship. They didn't fly back in those days. And I can still remember boarding that little ship. Actually, it was a freighter. This was not some Caribbean cruise, I can assure you. It was a freighter. And I can still remember uh, walking up that gangplank. And uh, I remember especially my mom just clinging on to grandpa and grandma because uh, she was raised in a little town in Missouri and never really left the United States much. And now we were... This was going to be a five-year assignment before we would ever see loved ones again. And sailing out underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, and we went to Korea and uh, grew up in Korea for, for five years. So that's one of the things I love about coming here to Hawaii. Um, you know, I grew up on rice and kimchi, kim, even pop. And then, of course, we, then after five years in Korea, my parents accepted an invitation to go to Singapore as missionaries. So we lived in Singapore. Singapore is just another Hawaii multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi, all this wonderful food. And so, oh my, when I came here, I, I, mean, I was in heaven. This is just wonderful. This is like going home again. So we were there in Singapore for, uh, uh, for 10 years. So, I, you, know, I, you know, it's just, it is what it is. We are all raised, none of us choose our heritage and our parentage. Is this not right? We don't choose it. This is just, this is a little bit of my story. And so I went to college and accepted a call to, uh, to the ministry by God and uh, have pastored for the last uh, 23, 24 years before coming here as, uh, as president. But I want to share this little brief testimony with you because 
I am unashamed and unabashed to stand here before you and publicly state that I believe that the same Holy Spirit that inspired an apostle by the name of John on that island of Patmos there in the Aegean Sea who wrote a letter and this revelation that we have just we have just read a few short verses from is the same Holy Spirit who inspired this Christian classic that I hold in my hand right here entitled The Great Controversy. This is the testimony I want to share with you. My great-great-grandparents were farmers in Iowa. Anybody here from Iowa? I don't think so. They were farmers in, uh, in Iowa, and so great-great-grandpa was out there doing whatever farmers do. I, I didn't grow up on a farm. But some guy came walking up the little dusty road from the main road up along the driveway up to the door of the little farmhouse, knocked on the door. Great-great-grandmother opened the door, invited him in. He had this huge satchel that he was carrying with him. And so he says, listen, I've got a few things I want to share and show you. And so grandma got grandpa, great-grandpa's attention. He came in, sat down, and he opened up the satchel and began to pull out these books. Colorful books, story books, Bible story books for children, all these beautiful pictures and paintings. And so he came to the end of the presentation and said, hey, listen, how would you like to buy some of these? Well, they're poor farmers in Iowa. Sorry, we don't have any money. Just don't have any money. And uh, you probably are beginning to recognize and realize who this individual was. He was a coal porter. That's who we refer to him as a coal porter. And some, something impressed Bless his heart. Something impressed that young culprit's heart before he walked out of the door. He said, listen, he said, if I give you a book for free, if I give it to you for free, will you promise that you will read this book? Oh, I said, you know, back in those days, there's no television. The only entertainment they had, farmers back in those days, if they had any free time, is they'd read. They'd read. Say, yeah, sure, we'll read the book. And so he placed a book in their hands, and they started reading it. Night after night after night, they began to read this book. Now listen, they were, they were Christians. They, they, they attended like a little uh, Baptist church there in town. But as they began to read through this book, their hearts were convicted that according to the Bible, the seventh day was the Sabbath. They didn't know any of the Seventh-day Adventists. They didn't even know a Seventh-day Adventist existed. But based upon the reading of this book, they actually, this little farmer family there in Iowa, began to keep the seventh-day Sabbath. Do you want to know the book that the call porter left my family five generations ago? It's this book right here, The Great Controversy. Now, you can understand why this book is so precious to me. You can understand that, right? I, by the way, believe that this is the magnum opus of the writings of Ellen White, right here. Now, you can, the Desire of Ages is right up there somewhere as well. But this is a book that has brought thousands and thousands of people into a deeper understanding and a deeper walk and commitment to Jesus Christ. And so that was it. Great, great grandparents. They became so excited about it. They said, hey, listen, we've got to hold an evangelistic series in our house. They invited the farmer neighbors. They said, you've got to understand, you've got to see this truth that we have discovered. And they started worshiping on the seventh day. And it wasn't too long after that, they began to discover that there were actually Seventh-day Adventists that were worshiping on the seventh day. My great-great-grandfather was convicted in his heart to sell the farm. So he sold the farm and enrolled at Union College there in Lincoln, Nebraska, 
and became a minister and became a pastor. And now there's this long line that has been passed on. And I tell you what, my friends, it is, for me, it is in such a phenomenal gift and privilege to still, following this long line of those who have gone before me, still preaching the soon second coming of Jesus Christ. And I still believe it with all of my heart. How about you? I believe it with all my heart. And so I tell you what, there's, there's, there, there's something about this book that has really, that has really stirred my, my heart and soul. But I, almost, I should also share with you that there is something here that makes it, well, it saddened me when I reread this. This is over on page 608. And uh, so you may want to write this down as a reference to page 608. So as I was reading this again, I came to this, this page, and this is, once again, this is tucked in the heart of uh, uh, the middle of this page, and this is what it says. This is a warning for us, all right? This is not a clarion call for the world out there. This paragraph that I'm going to share right now is a paragraph for us as Seventh-day Adventists. Notice what she says. She says, as the storm approaches, i.e., as the heat is turned on hot, all right? As the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message, She's talking about, listen, anytime you hear a reference of the three angels, I can almost guarantee you it's Seventh-day Adventists that are talking about it. It is almost a little cryptic code for us as Adventists. Do you hear someone talking about, I hear some, if I hear somebody say something about the three angels, I'll say, are you a Seventh-day Adventist? Nobody else is talking about it. So when she's referring to here that there is a storm approaches a large class who have professed faith in the three angels' messages, she is talking about Seventh-day Adventist Christians who are attending church just like you and me here the Sabbath. That's who she's, who she's referring to right here. But notice what happens. Profess faith in the third angel's message, but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth. This is the sad thing here. And listen to this. Abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition. This is a tragic, apocalyptic prediction right here. Seventh-day Adventists who join the ranks out there. She goes on, by uniting with the world and partaking of its spirit, they have come to view matters in nearly the same light. And when the test is brought, they are prepared to choose the easy, popular side. Now, you know, let's face it, it it's almost human nature. Is this not true? That when the heat is on, the tests come the human inclination is to choose the path of what? Least resistance. That's just a part of human nature. Heat's turned on hot, trials and tribulation comes, temptations, oh, listen, well, I think I'm just going to choose the path of least resistance. You know, I was thinking about this a little bit uh, here uh, recently, and you, you, you kind of wonder when you think about these, these last day events, how in the world is anyone going to not choose the path of least resistance. When this shaking comes, how are we going to be able to stand? You know, Jesus tells a parable that I believe gives an answer. Would you mind taking a look at it with me here quickly uh, this morning? It's found over in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. How will anyone survive this shaking? Now, the, the interesting thing about Matthew 24 is, is that most of the time when we think of this passage, and rightfully, rightfully so, we're always contemplating all the signs that Jesus lists as indicators that he's coming very soon. But in the heart 
of this great science chapter, Jesus tells a little story, a metaphor, to help us wrap our arms, so to speak, around the point that he's making. Notice the parable that Jesus tells here in, uh, in Matthew chapter 24, and uh, here it is in verse 37 through 39. Jesus says, But in the days of Noah, so will it also be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days of before the flood, they, referring to the antediluvians, people of Noah's day, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Anything wrong with that? No, no, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Until the day that Noah entered the ark, verse 39, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Now here's, here's the application, the point that Jesus is making. And he says right here, the last part of verse 39, so also will the, son, the coming of the Son of Man, what? Be. That's the way it's going to be when Jesus comes. Now look, again, nothing wrong with eating, drinking, getting married. I mean, this is the stuff made of life. This is, this is all that we do. The point that Jesus is making, though, is that for those antediluvians before the flood, they were so busy living the everyday life that they neglected the spiritual preparation for the crisis to come. You get the point? So they were caught up in the everyday life just as we are caught up with the everyday life, but they, the lesson we need to learn from them is, is that they neglected the spiritual preparation for the crisis that was about ready to come. Here's the other question. Were the antediluvians warned in advance what was coming? Yes, they were warned in advance what was coming, but they scoffed even at the thought that such a crisis was coming, which kind of makes you think about the three Hebrews. Remember them? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? If you want to talk about three young men who stood the test when literally the heat was hot, it would be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what did it all boil down to? The issue boiled down to worship. You're either going to bow down and worship this idol, or they're going to continue to worship the Yahweh God. I tell you what, my friends, go back and read Revelation 12, 13, and 14, and I will guarantee you the issue that you and I will face at the very end is going to be an issue over worship. Who are you going to bow down to and who are you going to worship? There's only two choices. You either are going to blindly follow after a beast who has set aside a day of worship, or in Revelation 14 it makes it very clear that God created, remember the three angels' messages, God created the world, and on the seventh day, what did he do? He set it aside, and every seventh day, as it rolls around, it is a memorial that we worship the creator God. The antitype was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow down. So when the heat was on, when the test came, they withstood the test. Now, do you remember back in the days when you were in school? When you were in school, were you ever able to flunk all the quizzes, flunk the midterm, and ace the final exam at the end? Now, there have been plenty of students who have attempted that, let's face it. They just ignore everything later. I mean, the quarter begins, the classes begin, they don't care. You know, no, no, quizzes, who cares? They flunk that midterm, who cares? Flunk that. And then somehow they've come to the conclusion that they're going to be able to pass that final exam at the end. Can you do it? No. It's only when you faithfully pass the little quizzes, faithfully study and pass the midterm, that at the very end you're able to pass the big one. 
I would suggest to you, my friends, that when it comes to the big, big, big test at the end of time, that God places these little tests and quizzes along the way for you and I to take a stand and to remain firm, to stand on the word of God. It's a way of preparing us for that moment when the big test comes. And when it does, we will stand just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A couple other thoughts here and then we'll conclude. This is Great Controversy, page 464. Write this down. This is, this is just a marvelous, marvelous passage here. 460, uh, 464. Let me read it to you very, very uh, quickly as we, uh, as we wrap things up. 464. All right. Before the final visitation of God's judgment upon the earth, by the way, the book of Revelation describes that in great detail. Before that takes place, God's judgment upon the earth, there will be, I love that, that is a statement of fact, there will be among the people of the Lord, that's us, such a revival of, do you know the next two words there? Primitive godliness, very good, primitive godliness, as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. 14 pages later, page 478, write this down, and I'm going to end on this. 14 pages later, page 478, basically is saying the same thing, but just changes it slightly. I want you to notice this. It is only as the law of God is restored to its rightful position that there can be a revival of primitive faith and godliness among his professed people. What did, when did we find the original manifestation of this primitive faith and godliness? Well, you go back to the early New Testament times, back into the times of uh, Peter and Paul and, and, and John. And what do you find in their lives that would indicate this primitive faith and godliness? What you discover is radical prayer, radical study of God's word. In essence, what is being said here in this passage is that there will come a time among the people of God, just like the primitive faith and godliness back when it was originally seen in the times of the New Testament paradigm, it will be seen in the church of today. Radical prayer, radical faith among the people of God. And so let me, let me leave you with this. I just want to encourage you. You know, I read this somewhere, and I, I apologize not knowing where this is from. But it simply says, when all hell breaks loose, you must be doing something right. Does it feel like that sometimes, when, when everything is just coming apart at the seams? Just like it's always the tallest tree in the forest that gets struck first by lightning. As Christians, as we stand tall for Christ, we have to expect that these little tests are going to come along the way. But it's our choice, it's our choosing to stand tall for God. So I want to I give you a challenge. I want to challenge you that sometime today when you go back home that, uh, that you find in your home, and I know that you have this somewhere uh, in your home, this copy, uh, your copy of The Great Controversy. Now, of course, my challenge would be for you to read the entire book all the way through. Some will say, look, I, I'm just too busy. I can't do that. There's 42 chapters, and I realize it's a, it's a fairly thick book. If you can't do that, I would suggest you start in chapter 18 and, and just read the last, the last half. And if, if you're still not sure you can do that, then I'm going to give you as an assignment between now and Nick Sabbath, two chapters to read. Now, I'm not going to be here, Nick Sabbath, so it's Scout's honor, all right? 
So Junior, I give you permission to stand in front of the church and say, can I see the hands of those who read those two chapters? You need to read chapter 25 and chapter 35. All right? Jot that down. Great controversy? All right? I want to make sure this is, this is an assignment for next week to read during this week. If this is not an eye-opener as to the times that we are living in today, I don't know what else is. Chapter 25 and chapter 35. And for those of you that live in the Hilo area, uh, starting May the 6th, which is a Wednesday night, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, they've invited me to come over to Hilo and do a little revival series. And so I'm going to be in Hilo, and we're basically going to be doing a study straight from the Great Controversy and from the Book of Revelation. So if you live in Hilo and you want to come to the church, it's going to be on May the 6th. Uh, Wednesday night, Thursday night, and a Friday night, and you are more than welcome to come. So I just want to encourage you. These are challenging times, but you know what? Aren't you excited to be a Seventh-day Adventist? I'm so excited to be a Seventh-day Adventist in the year 2009. You know, I think about those who have gone before. Think about the forefathers and the foremothers, even going back in biblical times in history, who in their hearts they longed to be able to be alive when Jesus came. Think about my grandfather who we laid to rest a number of years ago. I mean, that was his dream. Preached all over the world that Jesus was coming soon. Now he's laid to rest. He will see the second coming, but he will not be alive to see, to see that moment on earth's history. And I think about my father. We celebrated his 75th birthday last week. All my family got together. He's been faithfully preaching for all these years, and uh, now I'm another generation that's preaching it. But uh, in my heart of hearts, this planet is gasping its last breath. Jesus is coming soon. What do you say you and I choose and commit to stand firm, to stand tall like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even when the heat is turned on hot? God bless you. I think we do have a